Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 25 of Off the Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all for joining us today, wherever you are. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, as I'm sure some of you are aware by now, Wednesday is our Team GB day here on the podcast, where once a week we head over the pond and chat with stars past and present from Great Britain. And today we have legend of the sport and three-time world record holder, Mr. Liam Tancock, joining the show. Spoke with Liam last week about what he's up to these days with his swim brand, Swimsy. We also discuss how he got started in swimming, playing rugby as well. We go through his amazing career with all the highlights, including his three world records, his two Olympic Games experiences, obviously his thoughts on the 50-meter events being brought into the Olympic program, and a whole lot more. So get yourself ready because Liam is definitely a ball of positive energy and he's about to lift your energy levels and motivate you just the way he did for me during this interview. And Ep 25 with Liam Tancock starts now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second inning. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Joining me today on the show is a two-time Olympian and a former world record holder in the 50-meter backstroke and a three-time world champion for both long course and short course. He was a champion for Team GB and England for over a decade in backstroke and medley events and being a four-time Commonwealth Games champion as well. It's a massive welcome to Off the Block Swimming Podcast to Liam Tancock. Liam, how are you going, mate? Very good. Thank you very much for having me, Robbie. Awesome. Man, how was that intro? I know you're a fan of the podcast, so you're used to hearing those intros about other guests. How was it listening to a, one about yourself? Uh, it's pretty cool. I think as a swimmer, you never really look back on what you've achieved. And I guess it's only since I've retired that, you know, people have actually said, oh, you did some pretty cool things. So, yeah, actually hearing it. Yeah, it sounds good. So I appreciate it. No, no worries, mate. Pump your tyres up any day. Mate, the pandemic... How have you been over there? How have you been going through it all, depending on where you live, depending you know, what you're up to and what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do? I know you've got the business going. And how have you been over there with family and work? It's tough, yeah. So I live in the Midlands. Um, I went to university at Loughborough and live in a village just outside, like a small village. Um, and you know, I grew up in Devon in the southwest, so a long way from home, sort of two, 300 miles. And... It's, it's been different. I think for us in the UK, it sort of hit mid-March and, you know, it was pretty much straight away. It's like almost going to protection mode. Um, from a business perspective, we had to change tact, we had to diversify and we had to completely change, you know, one of the things we did, Swimsy, is go to lots of swim meets. We did 250 swim meets a year. All of a sudden, we couldn't go to a pool. So um, changing it to more online and, and, and a different approach and actually trying to be a bit of fun on on social media and, and, and getting out there that way. So it has been tough. It's affected lots of people in lots of different ways. Um, but I'm very, I'm very keen on mindset and positivity and, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I think I was like that as an athlete and, 
you know, how can we use this to make ourselves better, whether that's personally or whether that's as a business, you know, tightening things up or, um, you know, it's actually been an a, amazing opportunity. I got married last year um, to actually spend a bit of time with my wife. You know, that hasn't happened where, mm. you know, she was a three times Olympic swimmer. Um, we traveled the world, did our thing. Um, she actually works for uh, Team GB now, the British Olympic Association. Mm -hmm. She was good due to be in Tokyo. So there was a big period of time where she would have been working with the current athletes across all sports. Uh, I was working away and, you know, this year would have been ships in the night. So actually to spend a bit of time together has been, been absolutely awesome. Well, mate, congratulations uh, on, the, on the wedding and getting married. Did you, have you found a time though, and I'll get myself in trouble because I know my wife is just sitting outside, but um, <laughs> there was a, a brief period for about six weeks where it was perfect because I did get to stay home with my wife and my daughter and have home time, which, you know, as you know, when we're working and it's full on and me as a coach, you're just never really home. You're always at a meet or you're somewhere. About six weeks was my limit. And then I was starting to get the itch to go back to coaching again because I was getting in trouble for things I probably wouldn't normally. Did you find that yourself or was it still the honeymoon period? So you're pretty sweet. Yeah, well, we've been together since 2006. So I think the honeymoon period's well and truly gone, but it's obviously yeah. nice to be married now. Yeah. But we're always just, we're a busy couple. We like being active. We like being out and about. So we've just done different things. We've explored the area around us like we never have before, which has been, been really cool. Um, we've got a camper van, so a Volkswagen camper van. Not one of the old school split screens. I'd love one of them, but I'd like to get to the destination. So, well, they're the new Californias. And, um, you know, we like to go out and about in that and, you know, away for, you know, a couple of nights or a week or, you know, down to the coast surfing or whatever it might be. So, you know, we're not one of those people um, who can sit around and be bored. Um, and I'm going to sound old now, but I think people that get bored are boring. There's yeah. one of those. There's always something to do. And, you know, I can't sit still, but there's, there's always something. So, yeah, we've, we've kept ourselves busy. And, um, you know, one of the things we've done is, is the best man at my wedding was a, um, he's a head chef. So we've got him, you know, virtual dinner parties where we've basically been cooking, you know, beef Wellington or some unbelievable meals, um, you know, learning from scratch. So I probably ate better now during lockdown than, than I ever have. So, um, yes, cooking skills have gone up and um, yeah, I guess that's good for the marriage too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I couldn't, I can't tell. I'm horrible in the kitchen, mate. And I, I'm never home in time for dinner. I'm always home and basically the, the meals are made for me, which I'm, I'm very fortunate. I do, I do um, thank my wife for that. Uh, how do you go in the kitchen? Obviously, you've had a bit of time. You've done the, the Zoom catch-ups with, with your mate there and learning. You feel a lot more confident. You're happy to put on a bit of a, a dinner now? Yeah, definitely. I, th I think for me, I'm I'm not a recipe book kind of guy. I'm a I'm a I like the taste of that. I'm going to chuck it in. So um, actually, you know, basically getting taught step by step from a professional was yeah was was pretty cool. And I guess that gives you more confidence to be able to do things. And actually, when you know how to do it, it's pretty easy. So um, and I'm a big foodie. I love food. Mm. Uh, I know I you know I listen to Eamon's thing and what he's done you know, with his, um, with MasterChef and then going on to do an, an amazing career in that game has been, you know, amazing. And I think one thing I took from, from the conversation with him was, was that he goes out 
and tries different things. Mm. Whereas at the moment, I'm one of those guys that go out and I'm like, I like that. I'm going to have it. Yeah. But I into him next time I go out, I'm going to try something new. So cheers, Eamon. Uh, yeah, I took that away too. I did say to my wife, next time we go out for dinner, I've got to try something different. And she couldn't believe it. She actually, she said, I don't believe it until I see it. Cause I'm very much a chicken schnitzel guy or, um, you know, a steak, very much the same, all the chicken burger. I very rarely stray off, uh, the norm. Safe. <laughs> all right mate let's get stuck into your uh, your swimming career mate growing up in england you've got football you've got rugby all around you how did you end up in the pool um i love water i grew up around the southwest and you know one of the things that i my parents wanted me to do is to be water safe and i know that's a big thing in australia mm. um but, you know, whether I was near the coast or a lake or a reservoir or the river, the canal, whatever it might be, there was lots of bodies of water around me. And, you know, that was one of the main things that my parents wanted me to do. Just be water confident, you know, go on holiday and, you know, I can be let around water. Absolutely fine. Another thing is um, I'm asthmatic. Um, had asthma, asthma since I was born. And... You know, it was basically diagnosed and told by a doctor. They said, get in and swim. You'll get some, um, you know, it's really good for your lungs. Chlorine in lungs, it doesn't really sound right. And I know mm. lots of asthmatic swimmers, but, um, you know, that was one of the reasons I got in. And um, from a learn to swim perspective, I've got a brother who's two years older than me. Mm. He went to learn to swim. And, you know, back when I learned to swim, it, it, it was different in the UK. It's changed now because you can learn to swim when you're a baby. But at that time... I couldn't go into the learn to swim school until I was six, which is crazy. So my brother was six. I was four. I had to go every week to watch my brother have fun in the water. And it was just one of those things that I just couldn't handle. So every week, rather than sitting on poolside, I walked around and made sure I was right there, you know, with the instructor, basically tapping them on the shoulder saying, I want to get in. Yeah. And after a year, they changed their policies to allow me in, which was good. So I, I got under their skin, I guess. But, um, yeah, it was all about just water safety. It was all about getting in the water, following my brother. And I guess that's where it started, yeah. That's crazy. Well, so what year, so what age were you not allowed? So up to what did you say, five or six? At that time, it was, yeah, six, I think it was. You weren't allowed in the water before. Um, you know, you could go in with family, but actually you learn to swim school. It's completely different now. You can have yeah. toddler sessions, baby sessions. You know, it's a completely different game. But um, at the time, it was, yeah, it was, it was different. It's interesting. Now you see all those videos of kids sort of getting chucked in and you think it's a bit aggressive, but all of a sudden they're floating on their back and they're, they're killing it. They're, they're doing a great job. You think, all right, I had a heart attack for a minute, but they're all good. Uh, what yeah. sort of a swimmer were you when you were younger, mate, in squads? Were you at the front of the line? Were you at the back? Were you loud? Were you quiet? What were you in squads? Um, I was probably one of those people that I was super competitive, but I did what was on the session. So I know that that sounds strange, but I would say 50% 50, 50 of people do what they think it says rather than do what it actually says. Mm. And I was one of those people that if it was technique... I did the technique correctly. And if that meant going at the back of the lane and having more room, but doing it right, I did that. Whereas I know you, you know, people used to do, I don't know, one arm butterfly or whatever you did when you're a kid mm. and just race to the end and try and win where I was trying to do the technique well. So if it was a main set, I would have always been in the mix, but it, um, you know, I would have, 
I would have done it as it was meant to be, whether that was at the right heart rate, if it was a warm up, a cool down, or a, a technique set. So I would I would mix around, but I guess I was always in the top lane. It's funny you say that. We did. Um, I'll, I'll give a little info about a session I coached the Sava with a junior squad. They're only bronze or silver, and we were doing three strokes, ten kicks, freestyle drill. And uh, you'd be surprised how many kids can't count to ten. And uh, they can only get to about three and then they just get back into their freestyle again. So uh, I agree with you, mate. More, more people should be doing it right. There's a reason for the drill and we should be doing it properly. What I, I think uh, add into that is being coachable. And I think that is a skill and the best athletes are coachable. You know, they might be a bit quirky and they might be a bit different, but they, they are coachable. And I think, you know, you do get outliers. Um, but yeah, 100%. But going back to your previous question, you talked about why swimming. And I, I, sorry, I missed that. But I actually played rugby till I was 15, so rugby union mm. um, in Exeter. And, you know, I did athletics. I did basically every sport going. And the actual reason I chose swimming and actually to go into a club, and that was probably, a, you know, choosing between what I wanted to do probably at the age of 15, is I could swim more times than I could play rugby. Rugby, I trained you know, once a week and did a game on the weekend. Whereas swimming, I could train every day if I wanted. Mm. And for me, that was, that was the environment I wanted to be in. But I love rugby, I love athletics, I love sport. Did you enjoy being around the team? Obviously, if you love rugby, you love sport, you love that team environment. Is that sort of what, you know, drew you towards swimming as well, being in that squad and, and being around your team? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I think I could do it more. I could push myself. It was down to me. You know, it's an individual sport, but you're part of a bigger team. I think that sort of, you know, really appealed to me. Uh, it, it's difficult to really say, but I think, I think, as you say, that was probably, probably the reason, yeah, that, that swimming, I, I chose swimming more. Mm. Any heroes growing up? Obviously, it doesn't have to be in swimming if you're playing rugby and, and you know, into other sports. Yeah, so I think even now I'm, you know, I'm inspired by the people that do great things within their sport. And obviously, in swimming, we've had loads. in In Australia, we've you, you, you guys have smashed it over the years. Do you know what I mean? So, um, but actually, for me, I, swimming, I didn't have many swimming heroes. You know, I looked up to people and I thought they did great things. But you know, talking about Kelly Slater earlier, what he's done for the sport of surfing's been incredible. You know, I remember when he won won the world championships eight times and they said it's you know the eight's like the unlimited sign and it's like you you know you're a god in the sport and he's gone on to do it you know a few more times since which is incredible you know lewis hamilton in formula one a tiger woods what he's done in you know serena williams you know all these great sports stars that have not just excelled in their sport but they've done it for a long period of time and They've almost given back to the sport as well. That's what I like. Do you know what I mean? Almost ambassadors for the sport. I think they should give back a little bit more too, mate. And when they pass away, and I'm, I'm not putting anyone in the grave here, but I think we should be able to examine their, their brains and have a good look at what makes a champion. What, 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 I don't really know of the science behind it. Maybe once they had passed away, we can't actually look. I don't know, but I'd love to get a little insight into what makes a champion and half the reason I'm doing the podcast mate, talking to, to all of you guys is I think sometimes I always get a little bit of an insight each time just at the the puzzles coming together slowly so it's that's good good idea I like it <laughs> <laughs> but for a lot of people uh there's a moment could be you know in training could be at a meet 
yeah, it could be anything. Was there a moment for you that you decided, you know, as you said, you're into rugby, but was there a moment where you went, no, I want to swim and not only do I want to swim, I, I want to be the best? No, I just love the water. I love being in the water. I love being with my mates. I love competing. I love pushing myself. But was there a moment? I think it just happened. All of a sudden I was racing. Oh, all of a sudden I was standing on a podium at World Championships. I think that's sort of how it happened for me. And if I look back, it was more that the people around me believed it and thought it. But I just swam. That, that was my, you know, my mindset. Let's just, you know, love what I do. And um, yeah, there, there definitely wasn't a defining moment. I just, just loved it. But I would say if I look back, there were coaches, there were teammates that probably would say, yes, there were, there was. Mm. Did you uh, put, you know, less pressure on yourself in, in that way, especially when you were younger in terms of just enjoying it and going out and doing your best and testing yourself? There wasn't a lot of sort of then expectations or anxiety around achieving or not? Not even at the top level. You know, for me, um, pressure, what, you know, what is pressure? What is um, expectation? And, you know, I look at things probably in a different way. Um, you know, my, not motto, but my mindset is very much, if you try your best, no one can tell you off. Mm. And lots of people think about the outcome and not the process. And I was very much like process driven. I was very much like, how can I be better? And, you know, the, the expectation and, you know, especially when you get to the big championships, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the, the home London Olympics later, but it's one of those things. Loads of people said to me, did you have pressure? Did you feel it? And I was like, no, because pressure is one of those things that you've actually got to accept. You know, I only had expectations of myself and I knew what, I'd, what, I, was, what I was capable of achieving. But yeah. um, my mindset was very much like, it's all about what I can do. You know, whether I've got sponsors and whether I've got the media, family, friends, whatever it might be, the crowd. But all I can do is my best and no one can, can tell you off if you tried your best. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. a bit like if you drop a glass on the floor, it's annoying. It smashes. But no one can really tell you off for that. You know, yeah, you might have been clumsy, but I didn't chuck it down on the floor. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say, oh, man, you know, I hate this glass. I'm going to chuck it on the floor. It was an accident. So it's pretty harsh if someone's trying to tell you off for something like that. Yes, don't be so clumsy or whatever. But I think that's my mindset. And it, it does go back to lots of different things within, within my sport and within my daily life. Do you know what I mean? I always want to be the best I can be. And I would never go into a race and try to swim slow. That's just not me. Mm. So if I didn't do what I wanted to do, that's, that's okay because I've tried to do it. Mm. It's funny you say nobody can say, you know, what you did right or, or you know, you didn't do your best because um, I was shocked, I think, when I was talking to Rebecca Adlington. I don't know if you heard that bit, but she was saying that after she didn't do as well as, as she hoped, I think it was at London, um, she had messages from people saying you've let the country down, you've let yourself down, you've embarrassed yourself. And I just, I couldn't believe that people had the balls to, and these are people probably sitting on the lounge with a pack of chips and a can of Coke and, you know, not having been achieved anything what she had. 
It's the same in the media, though. I'm sure that, you know, the Aussie media would pick up if someone didn't swim quite as well and, you know, slate them for it. But it's not as if those guys didn't try. Mm. And I'm one of those people. Everyone can have an opinion. You've got to accept that opinion for it to affect you. And that was my mindset. Crack on, have your own opinion. But, you know, why, why should, you know, I've got a lane, I've got my own water, I've got my own mindset. Why are you trying to affect me? Mm. So that, that was just the way I thought about things. But, you know, Becky was in a, a situation where she got thrust into the limelight four years out from a home games with double gold. Like, unbelievable. What a great yeah. athlete. And, you know, the four years leading up, she had lots of pressure. Like, she, she definitely did. Um, you know, and I, I remember speaking to her as an athlete about um, how she dealt with the pressure leading into those things. And it's difficult. It is difficult. But my, my mindset was very much like, you know, I'll do my thing. You were about yours. You can... You can say what you want, think what you want, put anything in the media. But ultimately, I'm going to go out, stand behind the Olympic block and do the best race I possibly can. I love it. I love the crack on reference. That's my favorite. Just crack on. Don't worry about it. Um, but you're pretty successful as a, as a junior age swimmer. I noticed in my research, you know, coming through, you did pretty well. I think you were um, British age champion. You went to youth Olympics, world schools. I'm not quite sure what that was, but I did note that in my research. Um, why do you think, you know, you were so successful as, as a, a young age group swimmer and did maturation, obviously, I didn't know you back then when you were 14, 15, 16 and maturing as a, as a young man. Did maturation help in that department, do you think, as well? Um, you know, I wasn't a big kid. I was, you know, lean and in shape. But I think I just like competing. But, you know, my mindset and, I, you know, I speak to lots, you know, I got lots of swim meets now and see lots of parents and lots of kids and the biggest thing for me is lots of people make excuses for why they're not going to perform. You know, they're too small, they're too old, they're in an age group where they're bottom of the age. You know, there's loads of excuses that you can have before you go in and even race. Whereas, you know, the people around me were talking about where they came in their race, where they came in their age group. And, you know, it was great if I did a personal best time. It was great if I won a medal. It was great if I made the final, whatever it was. But my the way I always looked at it as a, you know, literally as a kid was that I've, all right, I've won the hundred backstroke uh, age group nationals at the age of 13. Great. Whatever. It didn't really matter. My thing that I was worried about is, well, actually, where would that put me in the age 14 category? Where would it put me, you know, oh, 15th, brilliant. Where would it have put me in the, you know, under 16? Oh, I'd have been, 42nd where would it put me in the open age group 250th brilliant that was more what I was interested in I was up for the next thing I was I wanted to race the guys older than me bigger than me stronger than me mm. and you know whether I won my race or final or whatever age group it it wasn't you know it wasn't really of interest no one cares you won the 13 year old 100 backstroke do you know what I mean I don't care so you know that that was my mindset and I know it's slightly different, but that's how I think I got through the sport. No, mate, I, I agree with you. I, I always say, even we have junior states and things like that for these 11 and 12-year-olds and 10-year-olds, and I think it's great. And the kids love it, but no one's going to remember who won the 11-year-olds 100 freestyle. Exactly. Their mum will. I'm sure their mum will, and their dad will, and they'll celebrate it, and they'll have Maccas on the way home. I have no doubt, but... 
you know, it's, it's about keeping these kids in the sport and, and keeping them in the longevity of it all. Um, mate, 2005 World Champs Montreal was your first big senior meet, if I'm not mistaken. You can correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, what was that like for you, your first time racing for Team GB in a senior level? Because you got a bronze in the 50 backstroke, so you did pretty well on your first sort of step up to that senior level. How do you look back at that experience? I loved it, you know, going first world championships, racing for British swimming over there in Montreal, outside pool, you know, an absolutely first time racing in front of a crowd, like a proper crowd, um, that wasn't a junior competition, we had quite a small team, quite a small British contingent out there, and, um, you know, in that, in that, uh, that year, that, that world championships, three people got medals, one was myself in the 50 back, one was Caitlin, uh, McClatchy, my wife, mm. and who was also, so I'm an 85 born, she was an 85 born, and actually another guy called Dave Davis, who's an 85 born. So mm. we were the young guns coming through and we we're the, all the ones that picked up medals. So it was, a, it was a pretty cool experience, but it was one of those things, I said it right at the beginning of the podcast, it was all of a sudden I was there yeah. and my mindset was always where next, where next, where next. And all of a sudden I was there and I was like, oh, I got a bronze, fantastic. So, um, you know, an interesting thing there, actually. So I, my, so I got a bronze in the 50 back. The semi-final, my start was pretty good. I don't even know where I came, but obviously I made it into the final. In, in the final, I got a bronze, and I think I was seven one hundredths behind the gold medalist. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was like, that's amazing. That's pretty cool. But actually, my, just my reaction time from the start, the literal the reaction time was seven one hundredths slower in the final than it was in the semi-final. So the only thing that if I changed, if I, if I had a better start that was just quicker, not even better, it was just reacted quicker, it would have been an equal gold medal. It's, but I, that's what I like about our sport. It's about those fine margins, fractions of a second. And, you know, going to my first meet and, and winning a bronze medal was incredible. And knowing that I was only seven one hundredths off, off, you know, getting the gold was was also pretty cool. Was that the lessons you, you sort of took away from that, that it was the small things that made the biggest differences? And if you were going to, you know, make the step up the next time around to try and get that gold, that every little thing needed to be spot on? Yeah, like I said, I didn't worry about the outcome. I didn't worry about whether that was a personal best, a medal, a podium, whatever it might be. I was always about how can I break my race down and make it better. And I realized that actually the reaction is import as important as the finish or whatever it might be. Do you know what I mean, one little fraction, you can pick up all these little bits. And, you know, the, the British cycling team call them marginal gains. Yeah. These marginal gains, if you add them all up and... You know, that's easy. That's just being being ready to fire. Marginal gains, mate. I'm writing that down right now. I like it. I'm stealing that. Um, mate, I want to talk to you about your Olympic experiences. And firstly, Beijing 2008 you came into the meet in some pretty good form, I think, from the trials. And I think you did pretty well at World Short Course um, that year as well. Talk to me about your thoughts about Beijing and how you went there. Oh, I absolutely loved it. You know, first experience of... Uh, of an Olympic Games and you know it, it is the pinnacle of our sport being at the Olympic Games racing the, the best in the world you know it happens once every four years and you know it was in it was in Beijing it was absolutely incredible so you know I took a lot from that meet I did the um, you know the 100 backstroke 
I did the 200 medley. Um, I did the 4x100 medley relay. Um, and I finally learned all three. So it was, yeah, it was pretty cool. And you, yeah, your thoughts on your swims there? You're pretty happy with those in terms of the results and all that sort of stuff? I did the best I could, for sure. I was in uh, the, best pay, the, the best shape I possibly could. I was racing the best people. You know, swimming's, swimming's an interesting thing. It's not just about doing a time in training when no one's watching. It's, you know, we know, obviously not this year, but normally down to the day, down to the hour that you're going to be racing in that Olympic final. So you've got to peak at a certain time. It's not about being, you know, you've got to be ready. It's, it's not about having a, a big period of time. You've got one minute to perform or, or less. And mm. I think that's quite exciting, really. So, yeah, I was pleased the way I came with it. I learned a lot from it. I changed tactics and the way I dealt with things. You know, I'm an out-and-out out sprinter. And, you know, I... I don't know what my 50 split, but it was probably ridiculous and I died. So, uh, but you know, I, I got myself in the mix and, um, probably scared a few people along the way. I love it. Hey, talk to me about the village experience there, because obviously we're about to go into London in a second, but I can only assume that London, you know, and maybe it's different for you just based off your, 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 uh, mentality towards pressure and things like that. But I could have assumed that London might've been a little bit more of a pressure cooker in terms of the village experience and maybe less, um, you know, enjoyable given that it was a home games. Was there a difference between Beijing and London in terms of the, the village life or not really for you? Uh, not really, other than I knew what it was like, you know, Beijing was my first time and London, I've been there before. So it was, um, the Olympics is Olympics and it's always going to be special and every host nation or host city puts their spin on it. You know, no, no two would be the same. And obviously the, the, the London one was very British and it was, you know, people didn't care who you were, but if you wore a tracksuit, the British tracksuit, all of a sudden, you know, you couldn't walk anywhere. Yeah. And it was, that was, that was mad. But in terms of pressure, yeah, you know, there, there was pressure, but like I said before, it didn't change anything for me. You know, they can have that. I had to accept that pressure and I chose not to. And that was just my mindset. So um, we got a few perks because we were Brits. You know, we, if we were queuing up and there was a queue to get into the village, they would open a new one for us so that we could just get straight through enough to, do you know I mean, there was, yeah. there was a few things you know, I turned up once the swimming had finished. This was this was my thing that I learned from Beijing. Um, I didn't get to go to many sports because I couldn't couldn't get tickets. Whereas in London, I still couldn't get tickets to watch any other sport. But I just rocked in and and made myself, you know, put myself in a situation where I could get in there into the velodrome or into the athletic stadium and you know watch the best athletes from around the world compete. And I think that's one thing I took. But from the competition side, the pressure side. I just absolutely loved it. Mm. And I think you learn, like, you do more walking in Olympic week than, than ever, you know, and, and just be doing more walking can affect your taper and affect your performance. So understanding those little things and, you know, there's lots of excitement around the Olympic village, but actually honing that down and, you know, let that go in the second week once you've finished competing. How did you deal with the media and the hype around it? Because I know, again, just going back to um, Becky talking about, her experience, she was saying that people were trying to film her training sessions before the, just, you know, a week or so before. And she's like, what are you, what are you filming it for? Like, there's nothing special going on. What, what was it like with the hyper Because I can only sort of equate it to for myself 
from a, as a fan watching Sydney because I was I was a teenager when Sydney was on, um, you know, in two thousand, and how big that was, and how you know the, just the athletes were rock stars to me. I spoke to Susie O'Neill two days ago, and I, I I just was buzzing after I spoke to her. I was so it was it was embarrassing almost, but um, just because I, I idolised these guys. What was it like for you as an athlete with the media and with the hype around it? I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was. It wasn't any extra pressure for me. It was like, I, I guess this is the only way I can describe it. Is that I think you call them so different over in, in Australia. But a best man speech. Everyone absolutely dreads a best man speech. But the way I look at it is, everyone's on your side. You make a rubbish joke, people will still laugh. People want you to do well, and that was my mindset walking out to the Olympic final and seventeen and a half thousand people chanting my name I actually felt like a rock star mm. you know I could hear them when I was the way the funneled the sound down I could hear them the only time ever I've ever heard anyone when I'm swimming was at the London off the turn underwater it absolutely was booming and they are all willing you to do well no one wants you to do badly and that was my mindset I've got an extra 17 thousand people cheering for me not these guys. I was the only Brit in the final. Yeah. And that's cool, right? How can mm. you not love that? So um, I remember walking out for the Olympic final. You know, they, you walk out in, in your order. And, you know, I had some big headphones on. And I took them off and put my hands up and just took it in because that was what, what an unbelievable experience. You know, it was, mm. makes the hairs on your arms stand up even thinking about that. It was incredible. You mentioned the best man speech there, and I, um, I just you took me back to my own wedding and and my my brother's best man speeches and my own speech. How did your wedding go with the speeches? They they kill it with the jokes and the all the lines. Did it all go down well? Yeah, they were they were awesome. Yeah, they you know ripped me, but it was um, <laughs> wow. And they did it a bit different. They they actually had a um, they got out of My Little Pony book almost like a diary from when I was 12 and they started yeah. reading the diary as it was my own. So, um, yeah, it was, it was very funny. They got some good laughs and, um, yeah, good, good lads. That is brilliant. I love it. Um, mate, in the pool at London, how do you look back on those results? Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, based off of, again, you know, how, you know, you, you're feeling about things, obviously you would have been pretty positive with how you went. Oh, definitely. You know, I went to the Olympics and gave my best shot didn't leave anything outside the pool, pushed it to the limit. And I got, you know, I, I got a, a fourth and a fifth. And actually a, an interesting story. So like I said to you before, when I went to Beijing, I did the free events. I did the tournament medley there as well. Um, in Beijing, I got an eighth, seventh, a sixth. And in London, I got a fifth and a fourth. So the only places I haven't got an Olympic final is a gold, silver or bronze. But I did my best. I mean, I gave it a shot. Five races at two Olympic Games or finals. And, you know, what an experience. And I'm, you know, pretty proud to be sat here talking to you now about, you know, that experience. And, you know, I'd love an Olympic medal, don't get me wrong. But would it make me a better person? Nah. I love it. I do. I'm a big fan of your attitude. I'm loving it. listening to it. It's pumping me up as I am. Um, hey, the 50s. Um, should they be a part of the Olympics and not just the 50 freestyle? Obviously, we've got... Adam Peaty and other, you know, superstars of our sport that would absolutely love, I'm sure, to be diving in, doing a 50 breast, 50 fly, 50 back. Should they be a part of it? 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I think the way 
the way we look at sport, uh, well, events moving forward, I think things will change. You know, we're seeing the mixed relays, which is, uh, you know, everyone wasn't sure about that. And now people love it. So things will change. Um, I think the good thing for me is that FINA are fully behind getting the 50s in. Mm. Um, they want the full Olympic program at the Olympic Games. The IOC would like it because they see superstars like Adam Peaty. But it's an extra six races it's an extra however many people. So there's lots of politics behind it. And swimming, you know, it's got the most medals at the Olympic Games now. It's overtaken athletics. Now they've added the other ones in. And I guess the athletics guys don't like it. So there's lots of politics to play. And I'm sure there'll be things moving about over the next sort of 10 years, over the next few cycles. And, you know, there's no reason why it can be in for Paris. It's pretty easy to do. You can limit the numbers. It might actually get more nations involved. And, and for the Olympics and for, for swimming, that's not a bad thing. I think it'd be great. Um, I'm definitely hoping I've got my fingers crossed because as you said before, it's, it's, it's a different, you know, race. It's, it's, it's exciting. Um, and, and I think it'll definitely bring a different element and bring different superstars into play. Speaking of the fifties, you're a master at the 50 backstroke. Talk to me about your three world records and how proud are you of those? Oh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, for, you know, to say I was the fastest guy in the world for a period of time was, yeah, pretty special. Um, I'm sure you guys have a version of it, but do you have the Guinness Book of World Records? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up with the Guinness Book of World Records. Every Christmas morning, we used to, me and my brother, used to get the Guinness Book of World Records and we used to share it and spend basically the morning flicking through it, looking at all the crazy different, you know, whether it's growing your hair as long or your nails or the fastest this or the highest that and pretty much from the age of 10 I wanted to be in that book it was a pipe dream it was one of those things and it was always that thing that was in the back of my mind how can I get in this book it honestly from a very early age and I'll say we got it every Christmas from the age of 10 and it wasn't until 2008 when I broke the world record for the first time like I hit the wall and you know, I was like, brilliant. Like the only thing I could think of, it wasn't about a medal. It wasn't about anything. It was about being in the Guinness Book of World <laughs> Records. And I actually broke it off a guy called Thomas Ripraff, who was a German. And, um, you know, great guy, a bit older than me, a great competitor. And I, uh, I raced against him, uh, you know, a number of times, which was fantastic. And, you know, the next time I saw him, he shook my hand and said, well done. And, you know, passed it on, which was, which was really good. But my first thought was, I'm going to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's all I cared about from the age of 10, do you know what I mean? For the last 12 years or whatever it was. Um, so the Guinness Book of World Records actually gets published in the UK just in time for Christmas. So it gets printed in November and it's ready to go. In October, a guy called Randall Bow from America broke the world record again. So he smashed it, which was absolutely fantastic. Another great competitor. You know, I love racing against him, a, a really good guy. Um, so when it got published at Christmas, I had a look through the book and it said 50 back, Randall Bow, USA. And I was like, man, just <laughs> broke the world record. The one thing I wanted to do, it wasn't even break the world record. It was to get in the book. And I never was in the book. And I was like, right, that's it. So, you know, roll on next year. It's the World Championships. And I actually, it was the semi-final at the World Championships outdoor pool in one of the most amazing pools in the world in Rome. And I broke the world record in the semi-final. 
And it was the same thing again. Everyone was like, amazing, you've done a cracking job. And I was like, yeah, but the final's tomorrow in 24 hours' time. And anyone, any one of those guys has got a shout of breaking that world record tomorrow. That was my mindset. But interestingly, going off piste a little bit, lots of people around me were quite negative. It was like, yours to lose, yours to lose. And I was like, you know, it's not at all. Yes, I've just broke the world record. But actually, if, go, if those guys want to beat me, they're going to have to pretty much break the world record too because I'm, I'm going after it. It's just the best time at the end of the day. Mm. And, um, you know, I came away the next day at a decent start, powered through to the 50, touched the wall, looked up at the, at the, block, at the, at the scoreboard, and it was like Liam Tangle first, new world record, 24-04. So, but it was, you know, I got the whole you know, medal, stand on the podium, listen to national anthem, seeing family and friends in the crowd, you know, unbelievable experience. But for me, I was like, yes, there's not another 50 backstroke this year before it's published. Hello, <laughs> Christmas. You know, I actually got the Guinness Book of World Records. I went into my local shop. I actually bought it for my parents and gave it back to them and just said, look, thanks for inspiring me all those years ago. My mum, you know, bawling her eyes out. She thought it was amazing. But it was one of those things that you don't know. Little things can make a difference when you're a kid. And, you know, I was in it for the next nine or so, nine or so um, books, which was pretty cool. Mate, uh, Guinness World Records, there's some freaky stuff in there. I know there's obviously the, the, the speeds, you know, being the fastest man in 50 backstroke. But if that wasn't ever to be the case, did you ever think of growing your fingernails or something a bit? <laughs> did, was there any other sort of uh, options on the, on the table that you were contemplating to get in that book? What is it? Three crackers in a minute. I always thought I'd smash one, grow my fingernails, done anything. Yeah, I'm one of those guys that uber competitive and it doesn't matter what it is. It was, um, yeah, it was one of those things. Pretty cool. Mate, uh, two-time long course world champion from 2009, 2011, uh, short course uh, world champion in there as well. Did you ever get a chance to stop and appreciate, you know, what you achieved? I know I'm looking at your backdrop there and, and there's a lot of, accolades and, and memories that you obviously you know like to keep but did you get a chance to to take a, a breath and appreciate it um or was it not until sort of now that you look up and go shit yeah i did pretty well didn't i exactly exactly the latter really it was one of those things that it was always the next and that was my mindset my coach's mindset and it was very much like right we've done that we've done it well but how can we be better um, and it pretty much wasn't until I retired from the sport that it was other people telling me that like, oh, wow, you, you know, retaining the world title or you're on the podium in the 50 back 2005, 2007, 2009, 2011. Not many people do that at the top level for a long period of time. So it's it was yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you know what I mean, it was really cool. And my mindset is, you know, we spoke about heroes in the sport that have done incredible things. But my things about not just doing it once, repeating it. So it was quite nice to be able to, you know, break the world record in 2009 and win the world championships. And then two years later, actually retain that title. Um, you know, there's lots of people that's done, done it once, less that's done it a few times. So it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. But we talked about obviously the 50 back breast and fly not being a part of the Olympic program. Do you think the 50s and the sprinters and the pure sprinters, I want to stress this, the pure 50, because there are some people who are just 50 meter specialists. I know you were, you were able to go into the 100 um, 
back as well. And obviously in the 200 IM and, but there are some people who are just specialized in the 50. Do you think it gets enough respect? Cause there are people, athletes who are just fast twitch fiber speed demons that can go fast for 50. They should be on an equal playing field as the hundred and the 200. Do you think? In my mindset, yeah, and I think the generation before me probably had it worse. You know, the 53 has always been restricted in the UK. We've had people like Mark Foster who smashed it for years and went on for a long period of time. Um, I would say the other disciplines probably got less respect. You know, the funding wasn't based off of 50s. It was always Olympic events. Um, but, you know, as soon as it becomes Olympic, Olympic discipline, which I believe it will in the next however many cycles, um, people will start respecting it for sure. But, um, you know, who is it for anyone else to judge what anyone else is good at or what they think's good? Do you know what I mean, I, I know you spoke to lots of people about what's your hardest training session or, or whatever. But my mindset is, you know, lots of sprinters say, right, 25s, 15s, 50s, whatever it is, lots of rest. And a distance swimmer would say, yeah, but that's easy. But it's only easy because they can't do it as fast as the sprinters yeah, and they yeah. a, a lactic in their system as high as that. So like that set for a sprinter is super hard. And if a distance swimmer could do it as fast, it'd be hard for them. Mm. It's a bit like me, eight 200s. I could do eight 200s. I just wouldn't do it as fast as those guys. Mm. So everything's relative. And it's like watching who wants to be a millionaire. It's only easy if you know the answer. It's only easy if you've got the, that little bit. And for me, it's, it's, it's okay to be different. It's okay to have your little piece. And I think there should be respect amongst everyone. Those guys are good at what they do because they're good at what they do at their distance. And that spans from, you know, in the future, we might see 25 freestyle. Why mm. not? Do you know what I mean? We might see a 750 freestyle. It, who knows where the sport's going to go in the future, but I love it when people are respectful of others, passionate about the sport and want to push the boundaries. And I think that's what I like to see, whether they're, you know, a Grant Hackett doing 1500 or whether they're a Mark Foster doing 50. Do you know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's everyone in between trying to push their boundaries. And what we've seen with Adam Peaty in the 50 breaststroke, who wouldn't want to see that at the Olympic Games? Mm -hmm. I know I would. And... Yeah. And I know I'm a Briton and biased, but I get you. I guess you guys would too. The Americans would love to see it. And you know, the the world now is a is a short term. You know, you've got a attention span of three seconds. And even on Instagram, you're sliding through. If it doesn't interest you in a split second, it's gone. So the world's changing. The way we accept media is changing. So why would our sport stay in the dark ages? Why can't we move forwards and say yes? That's what we used to do. But now we do this. Mate, I love it. And I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to leave it at that because I think you said it best. And I don't want to ruin what you just said. Um, <laughs> how much did you enjoy Com Games, mate, as an athlete? I know you guys, uh, you know, enjoy those games a little bit more. I think they're a little bit more children. Like, you know, I've never been to that sort of level of meat, but I can only assume. And even talking to Susie O'Neill and everything that she achieved. So what was one of your favorite meets? She said Auckland in 1990. She said it was just one of the most fun games she's, she's ever been a part of. You know, you were pretty successful at Com Games as well, as I mentioned in my intro. Did you enjoy those games a little bit more as well? Because, 
you know, there was that fun, relaxed vibe, or were you already kind of like that anyway, so it didn't make a big difference to you? I was always like that, but I think for me, it's I like to race. I would race anyone, anywhere, anytime, even if I wasn't ready to race. And it didn't matter if it was the club championships or the Olympic Games, I would still give it the same effort, and that was just my mindset. Um, the difference for us for the Commonwealth Games is that we race as our home nation. So we race as Great Britain for every meet. But the Commonwealth Games, we split down into, you know, Scotland and Wales and England and whatever. So it's the, it's the time where we're competing against our teammates, people we used to be in a relay team. You know, my wife's Scottish. I'm English. So it's really cool that, you know, we're on teams together for Britain at the Olympic Games, but at the Commonwealth Games, we're rivals and that's awesome. So, you know, my first Commonwealth Games was 2006, um, Melbourne. Unbelievable. What an what a incredible, incredible meet that was. Um, you know, then Delhi in 2010 and Glasgow in 2014. So I've done three very different games. Um, I know you've talked about Delhi a few times and there was a few issues. I actually love that meet. Honestly, I'm probably the only one, but I absolutely loved it. Going to a, a completely different culture in a, in a completely different world. I know there's a few problems with facilities and things like that, but it was just different. You know, where else do you see monkeys and elephants on the road on the way from the, Olymp from the Commonwealth Village to the pool? You just don't. Do you know what I mean? I was sat on the bus looking out the window being like, wow, this is incredible. So, you know, I, I swam well there. Um, and I was probably one of the only people that didn't get ill. Um, but it was cool. You know, Glasgow was very different. But, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne Commies in 2006 definitely holds a, uh, a special place in my heart. It was very cool. You said you didn't get sick in Delhi. Was that just out of luck or were you a bit more tactical about what you did and didn't have or what you ate and didn't drink or was it just a bit of luck um i guess a bit of everything really but i'm uh, you're gonna think i'm absolutely mad now but i think that if you think you're gonna get ill you probably will and if you think you're not you won't be and and i know that's very vague and i know that's very yeah. out there but for, for me i did everything right i looked after myself ate the right things you know, doing what we're doing now, cleaning our hands and looking after ourselves. And there's some things that, you know, I didn't put myself at risk. You know, I went to the, the food hall and I got some chicken and it wasn't cooked. You know, there could be things like that. But as soon as you notice it, rather than making a big deal of it, you know, I said, you know, you probably need to cook that more, but got rid of it and made sure I was safe. So there's, there's lots of things in those environments where you could be the victim and there was lots of victims out there, not through their own fault, you know, their own fault, but um, my personality and my mindset is like, this is a race and whatever's thrown at me, we're all in the same situation, just deal with it and race. I was a bit slower than normal, but I still won a gold. So it was, um, and, and it's a learning curve. Do you know what I mean? Not everything's gonna be on a plate for you. Not everything's gonna be perfect. Um, but everyone's in the same situation. It's the people that can deal with those situations are, are the best. You know what I mean? You talk about other people. Gemma Spoffoff didn't do a, uh, a warm-up for, uh, before she broke the world record. Mm. But she dealt with that and realized that actually, that's fine. We can do that. 
and that's my mindset rather than rather than playing the victim it's like well actually let other people play the victim let other people worry and and push forward and i do think mindset is a very very important thing it's very very strong and i would say that's probably why i was a good athlete I, you speak to my coaches i was an awful trainer i was the worst trainer but i never left poolside and worried about it mm. ever but you competed into your 30s what, what do you think what do you attribute sorry to the longevity in in the sport the love of it I love swimming. I still love swimming now. Um, I guess just, yeah, the love, the passion, um, the people. You know, I think it's, yeah, I've got some great mates from, you know, from Britain, but from around the world that are passionate about the sport. Um, I think I just loved it. And why, why retire when you're doing well? You know what I mean? Why, you know, push yourself, try and push your boundaries. And that's, I guess that's what I did. Training wise with your coaches, did you get looked after in that way? Was training always fun, interactive? Was it changing? Was it keeping you engaged in that way so you weren't getting bored? Definitely. Definitely. I think um, so. The coach that I had for the longest, for 10 years, um, was a guy called Ben Titley, who's now head coach of the Canadian swimming team, you know, multiple um, Olympic champions from Canada now. Um, and there was one thing I'd say about him that was pretty special is he was an incredible session writer. And I would say I got coached by him for 10 years and we didn't do the same session twice. Mm. Like that's just incredible, right? Like I know lots of people that repeat the same week after week after week. Mm. Um, and there might be like key sets that you have to do, but for, for us, it wasn't really like that. It was like, how can we get the best out of that individual? where it's me doing backstroke or Fran House or doing freestyle. Like, how can we match those guys up to, to perform at their best, to make the best out of them? They might be doing completely different sets, but one's working on back ends, one working on front end, and you put them together and you make this, like, collab. Brilliant. What were your favourite sessions of the week? I'm going to come at it from a different angle for you, not what were the toughest sets or what were the ones that made you hurt. What were your favourites? What were things that you got pumped for and you thought, right, let's, let's have a crack at this and, and get into it? I quite like technical sessions, really. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely loved getting after, uh, you know, sprint sessions. Everyone loves a sprint session. Well, I love a sprint session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, I used to love that. I used to... Um, love a technique session I actually think there's really there's value in doing things right so what the session said I used to do um, and people used to take the mick out of me but I love fins like and not wearing fins to make it easy but wearing fins to make it done correctly yeah. you know whether that's body position or whatever it might be and um, I thought that was really good I actually quite like kick sessions as well um, and going slightly off piste here but after 2006 i just won the commonwealth games over in uh, over in australia and you know i came back i fell down three steps at home when i was visiting family and broke my wrist and you know i'd just gone from a massive high to a low and again back to mindset it's like how did i get through that period i remember speaking to my coach speaking to the physios and rather than looking playing the victim and saying right you know, I'm out of the water for six weeks. This is it. You know, within a day, I was at the best bone specialist in the country. I'd got a, a cast made for me that I could get in the water with. Yeah. 
and I kicked solidly. It nearly killed me for three weeks before I could get the cast off. And I became better for it. So I actually think in breaking my wrist helped me become a better athlete. And sometimes taking a step back and doing that can, can really help. So um, after that, my underwaters got better. I got stronger. I got faster, whatever it might be. But I used that time to get better. I remember looking, you know, I was based at Loughborough University, a big sports university in the UK. And we looked at papers for sports on transfer of energy. So just because I broke my right wrist didn't mean I couldn't train my left wrist. And there's lots of, there's lots of transfer of energy across, across your body to make you stronger. So I was in the gym. I missed one, one session when I broke my wrist. That was it. And I was annoyed that I did that. But, you know, those are the things that I think define people. And actually, how can you make yourself better? And I see people, you know, pulling things or breaking things or whatever. And, you know, you don't see them for six weeks. It, it, was, it was a good thing for me that I broke my wrist to make me a better athlete. Hey, how do you go fast at backstroke? Now, I know I as a coach, and there's a lot of coaches out there that will be able to talk to their athletes and have the answer, but I do find sometimes as a coach, we almost become the parents, in which case the parents always say to us as a coach, oh, can you tell them something? Because they don't listen when I say it, but if you say it, then they'll listen. I do think at times that becomes the same as the coach. You know, we say things so often that it becomes you know, white noise to them. And it's not until, uh, you know, a legend such as yourself sort of points things out that they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Not that their coach hasn't been talking about it for the last, you know, two years. What, what are some of the keys, do you think, to, you know, going fast at backstroke, transferring that power and energy, as you said? Um, I guess I was known for my arm speed, um, my power through that. So I had a, a quick rotation. Yep. You know, there were guys out there that didn't have a quick rotation that were six foot seven and were just strong and powerful and a great catch. So, you know, you've got to use what you've got to make yourself the best, not just copying someone. It's like, yes, they've got a good way of doing something, but that's not going to work for me, my height, my shape, my body type. You know, in the Olympic final, we've got people that are, you know, five foot nine and six foot eight. There's a massive range. And you know, I'm six foot on the dot and I've got to use my assets to make me the best swimmer. Doesn't mean I can't learn from the people around me. Um, but yeah, arm speed, power. Um, I think a, one of the biggest things that are neglected in sport is, or young kids, is they train their arm and they train their legs, but they don't train the bit in between. And actually your core can be something super, super powerful. And in backstroke, without a good core, you're no good. And without good hip strength to keep your help up on the water, you know, exactly the same. So we used to think outside the box um, and we used to do lots of cross training. Um, and that was one thing as a group we we were like, how can we be better as a squad? How can we, you know, people have been swimming for hundreds of thousands of years and everyone's getting better, but how can we think outside the box to make us even better? So, you know, we used to do crazy things like rock climbing. We used to do kickboxing. We used to do ballet. We used to do all sorts. And everyone used to say the ballet one used to get everyone like, why are you doing ballet? But if you think about it, what is a core, what is a ballet dancer good at? 
they're strong, they got a great core, and their hand and their placement is perfect. Mm. It has they have to know where their hand is at any time, their foot is at any time, their pointed toes. Athletes need to have or swimmers need to have pointed toes. So we can learn a lot from the people around us. Kickboxing, especially for backstroke. If if I stood in front of you and tried to punch you with a, you know, just a straight chest, it wouldn't hurt. Mm. But if I swung into it and I used my hip, that's how they generate their power. It's exactly the same for backstroke. So if we look outside of our sport, break our stroke down and look at the best people, look at the best people that do things in the right way. You know, basketball guys jump the highest. Let's learn from them. Why are they so good at what they do? And how can we take that back to our, our event? And that's what I think we did differently than pretty much anyone in the world. Mm. I do believe it's changing now and people are thinking outside the box, but I used to love that. Mate, I love that boxing analogy. I use that uh, as well as tennis. I talk about tennis and, and that forehand and driving through the hips and things like that. Um, not that it always lands, but just trying to come up with different ways of, uh, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat. And, you know, as you know, with athletes, not the same, uh, you know, speech gets through to, to, you know, the same athletes. Some people are very visual. Some people need to have those chats. So, no, I love it, mate. Um, definitely sure. I'll use a few of those on poolside this is what i do sometimes if people aren't getting it get someone on poolside and actually get them to stand in front of you and hit your hand and without any movement and they count for a good punch and get them to step into it and they're like oh yeah right it makes sense and then thinking about that in a swimming situation yeah you you know it's like school you've got to teach things in different ways to get through to different people and and as you say if i came in for a couple of sessions they would listen to me more just because I'm new, not because I'm better, mm. not at all. And that's just what happens. Do you know what I mean? I, I go into swim schools and I do master classes every now and again, and it's always the same. The coach has been saying the same thing forever. I go in and, you know, say what the coach has said. And they're like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Why haven't my coach ever told me that? <laughs> like, ah. So, yeah, it's just the way we are, right? Mate, retirement, talk to me. How, how did that come about? And how long in advance had you been planning on it? Probably since London, to be honest. London 2012. I retired in 2016. Um, I had a tough time, I'd say, after, after London. Um, lots of things changed. Um, coach moved on. I got a new coach, which was absolutely fantastic, guy called James Gibson, and learned a different way of swimming, which was really good for the later parts of my career. And I actually think that enabled me to go on longer. Um, but I did have some injuries, um, injuries that took a long time to find. Um, and it was tough, but, you know, I still went to, you know, the world championships and, you know, finalist in, in Kazan in, mm. in, in Russia in 2015 and, you know, the Commonwealth Games medalist or whatever. So the, it was, it was an interesting time. Um, but I knew I wasn't ready to retire after 2012. I knew I still a li little bit more in me and I wanted to retire on my own terms rather than other people saying it, because I didn't want to look back in 10 years and saying, what if, um, and it, I loved it. I love the sport. I still do. So it was like, how can I make the most out of this situation? How can I get the best out of myself? And actually it gave me four years to plan an exit from the sport. And I think that was really, really important because lots of people now, even now finish their sport and are like, Oh, what do I do? And this isn't uncommon with swimmers. It's across the board. And, you know, I think that's, that's a difficult time. Um, I studied a degree 
And I had that as a, as a bit of a backup. I did sort of teaching qualifications in swimming. So I got my grades or whatever levels. Um, I knew that isn't what I wanted to do. Um, but I used that period, probably not until 2014, really. So two years out from retiring to, to talk to people. So I spoke to people. That's what you need to do. Speak to lots of different people in different industries that you're interested in, whether that's, you know, marketing, coaching, accountancy, whatever it might be, and ask them about their job. What's the good bits? What's the bits people don't tell you? Um, how long do you spend in front of a computer? How long do you spend outside? Do you know what I mean? All these little mm. things that you probably wouldn't find out unless you spoke to people. And everyone says grass is always greener. Or, oh, they must have a cool job. But I didn't want to work in front of a computer all the time. I didn't want to do this. Um, and then the next thing I did, apart from talking to people, was doing some sort of online courses. So there's loads of online courses out there, whether they're open university ones or whether they're, um, you know, snippets of modules from courses and things like that. And I looked at loads of different ones and then I did one that was about brands. And I was always keen. I worked with, you know, different, uh, different you know, high profile brands um, for a number of years, loved all that side of things. And now it's like, oh, well, maybe we could set up a, a, our own brand. You know, that, that, that could be really cool. And then I brought it back to swimming. And I was like, why was I successful as an athlete? And it wasn't because I was good at swimming, but I had the right team around me. So then I was like, well, I can't just go and create a brand not knowing anything about brands other than I like them. Mm. So actually, we, you know, I spoke to a few people, found someone else who was super successful in that area for 25 years who was looking at doing the same thing and we sort of built this team around this new brand um and it was a great opportunity for me to learn so in 2015 we sort of set up swimsy um and i tried to look at swimming as what was swimming missing and i was one of those athletes that was always known as liam the swimmer from you know a very early age even now really and there was nothing you know, I had an identity in the pool at swim meets, in your trunks. Everyone knows you're a swimmer. But outside the pool, I had to wear the same clothing as my friends. So how could we get an identity of a swimmer outside the pool, but that our mates, our schoolmates, our other mates thought was cool as well? Yeah. So we came up with Swimsy. We've got lots of different clothing, lots of different apparel, Um I'm thinking outside the box, like something stupid people on the podcast can't see this, but this is a bottle we've got. So it's a Swimsy bottle. No one makes a litre anymore. Mm. One of the biggest bugbears for me is no one drinks enough as an athlete, whether you're an Olympic swimmer or if you're just starting out. No one drinks enough. So we basically created a litre bottle. It's not revolutionary, right? But on the side, we put things like a best practice session plan. So we got dry land, warm up, preset, main set, warm down. Mm. And as you're going through your session, you know how much to drink. And as competitive people, athletes want to do this. Swimmers want to do that. So you're going through a session, you got a few of these at the end of the lane and they almost police themselves. Mm. And it's been really good speaking to lots of different coaches about that environment is people are drinking more because it says to one on a bottle. It's mad, right? A coach could stand there. A parent could stand there all day and say you need to drink more kids won't they won't but if they're policing each other themselves or the people around them it really does make a difference and we all know hydration is super super important right so we're trying to do things to the swimming world that give back that 
make people take ownership of their own environment. And, you know, I don't know whether it's the same in Australia. I know it's warmer out there than the UK, but people get out of a race, don't dry off, sit around in their trunks and get cold. A cold summer is not a fast summer, right? So, you know, if we can create clothing that they want to put on because they think it's cool, but actually it benefits them because they're warmer. They don't know it's benefit them because of that, but it actually is. There's a lot of performance gains from those things. And, um, you know, it's getting into the swimmers subconscious and yeah, swimmers like being swimmers, right? And that's where it all sort of stemmed from. Mate, I love that idea with the drink bottle. It um, it just reminded me in, with a lot of the sets I do, especially around speed or 200 pace or back end or whatever it might be. Um, I, I actually don't tell my swimmers what to do in terms of stroke. I say, it's your choice. You do what you want to do. What do you got coming up? All that sort of stuff. You'd be surprised how often the answer is, can you just tell me what I need to do? So in terms of looking at that bottle, that is just pretty much a step for step drink here, drink here, drink here where they don't need to think they don't need to get told, you know, they're just looking at go, Oh yeah. Okay. I better drink a bit more now, a bit more now. I think it was brilliant. I'm on the main set. Why is my bottle on the, on the, on the warm up? Do you know what I mean? And, and, and that's what it's all about. People like being coached and the best athletes do. So I think, you know, there's, there's method to it. So it's just one of those things. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to better the sport in a way that could help athletes understand why they need to be better. So um, it's actually gone down in a storm in the UK and um, yeah, it's been really cool. Mate, I love it. Can they get shipped out to Australia or what? Yeah, we, we've set up a, a mini outlet in, um, in Sydney actually. So um, yeah, so Swims Australia exists now. We've been ticking over for a, maybe a, 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 a couple of years, but at SOPAC um, we do team kit as well because I think teams look bad you know when i was 10 we used to get my parents to go to the local sports shop get a t-shirt go to the embroiders get an embroidery badge on it that was our team kit that happens today that's awful right <laughs> so i'm really passionate about about a club or a team being a brand mm. you know it's if you're a red team you look like a red team but you can't tell what red team that is but you go in I'm talking about football now. In Premiership football, you've got a Man United, a Liverpool, and an Arsenal. They all wear red, but they don't look like the same team. They're their own brand. And I'm really passionate about getting clubs, teams, empowering them to be their own brand. So we do some really funky designs, which haven't been seen in the world of swimming before. You know, stuff that happens in cycling, stuff that happens in rugby, but not in swimming. And actually empowering a small little club to be a powerful brand themselves. And, you know, we've got SOPAC on board as a team. Uh, in the UK, we've got, I don't know, 250 swim teams, a few, a, few around the, uh, a few around the world, a couple in Thailand, for example, that are forward thinkers, young coaches that are forward thinking and want to be bigger. And for me, walking out in the Olympic Games, wearing the same kit as my mates, wearing it makes you stand taller. It makes you look, it makes you feel stronger. It gets other people to look at you and forget about their race. And, you know, we're talking about mindset and things like that. It actually does make people stand taller. The, the, and I think if you stand tall and you walk tall, you will swim faster. Again, back to the mindset stuff. This is the stuff I love. But from a swimsy perspective, we want to empower clubs and teams 
to be the best they can be, create a brand. You create a brand, people want to be associated with that brand. And, you know, that's what we've done pretty successfully in the UK. And, you know, we're, we're looking to spread that all around the world. I'd say we've got Sopak on board as a team and, you know, they look pretty awesome. Mate, yeah, I love it. Um, you, you've mentioned the mindset stuff a few times and I, I love it. I know you would have listened to to the podcast and you would you'd gauge by the way I ask my questions that I'm more sometimes interested in the mental side of things than the physical side of things I don't really talk about the sets that much I don't go into because to be honest you know each set works for each person I don't think just because I write down the the Adam Peaty set that I'm going to give it to my 15 year old breaststroker and he's going to be a great swimmer now so it's all about the mental side of things something that's been very interesting to me lately and as I said to you before I'd sort of take a little bit away is the the mindset of a champion is almost that they hate losing more than they enjoy winning. Talk to me about what you sort of look at in the mindset of a champion. What makes a champion mindset to you? Um, you know, I know, I know you've spoken about this, but the um, the last dance that was on Netflix with uh, Michael Jordan, and and you see outliers like that who are like just above and beyond what the rest of the world is like in their field. Um, and there are those outliers that do that. Um, I think I probably wasn't like that. I wasn't ruthless. I wasn't, you know, I, I think you can be good and nice at the same time. I think that's my personality. And I would like to think that I made the people around me better by picking them up, helping them. You know, I was probably that sort of person. Um, and sharing experience and moving things on and, you know, we, we're all better together, even if they're a direct competitor. I think that was my mindset. But people do hate losing. But for me, it's okay to lose as long as you did your best and as long as you executed the thing that you wanted to do. So sometimes I went into a race and I said, right, all I'm working, easy speed going out, back end coming back. Did I hit those targets? Yes, brilliant. That's success. So it wasn't really about what happened at the end. It was about what went through. Um, and I guess the mindset thing that I was, that really helped me is, and I got, you know, Olympic champions asking me at the shower at the end of a race or at the end of a, a training session, how can you be so happy if you swam so bad? And I'm like, oh, brilliant. Did I swim that bad? Like I, I didn't ever think like that. <laughs> yeah. But they were saying it almost for them. They, they beat themselves up if they swam bad. But I, honestly, as soon as I left that poolside, and then, like, yeah, but you've had a bad session. How, how do you deal with that? And I was like, well, you know, I've had good sessions before. Just because I had one bad session doesn't mean I'm a bad athlete. You know, I could have two sessions. I could have two weeks of bad sessions, but it doesn't say I'm a bad athlete. I'll have a good session again in the future. I just got to find my way to do that. And that was very much my mentality. At the end of a session, I always said thank you to my coach. It was a thing I did because they're there to make me better. And I need to accept that even if I had a stinker, even if I had the worst session ever. And I'm telling you, I was a bad trainer. I wasn't the best. But the thing that made me better than others was my mindset. You know, body posture. If someone slouched down before a session or, like, oh, or before a race, we all know that they're going to swim bad. I actually personally think you sit up tall, you stand tall, you're almost tricking your own body to feeling better than it is. And your mind is incredible. Your mind is powerful. And I used all these little things that I learned through the years that made me 
a better athlete, I believe. Um, because as I said, I wasn't the best athlete. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the tallest. I wasn't the fastest. But I raced my own race and I made myself feel better than, than I did most of the time. And, you know, you, you fake it till you make it. That's what pretty much happens in, in the world of business. And, you know, no one knows how to, to run a business when they start, but they learn pretty quick and learn from the people around them, mm. surround themselves by the right people. And I found that that's what I did in, in the world of swimming, surround myself with the right people that picked you up, that pushed you forward. And the mindset was always looking to the next thing, always being positive, not looking at, not dwelling on the negatives, learning from them, learning from them. But, um, you know, that's, that's just the way I was. I, I guess I am still today. Mate, um, just going back to the, you know, the brain overpowering the body and the brain, you know, almost making the body do things. Um, my favorite thing to tell the swimmers in terms of when you're hurting that the brain is the key to that is you look at those marathon runners who are, are legless, literally legless at the end of their race, stumbling into the walls, falling down. But their brain, their power, you know, in their in their mind is so strong that they're still pushing their body. Their body's basically giving up, but they're still pushing. They're still going. That to me, that's incredible. And to me, I don't think there's any better um, example of what your brain is capable of than those phenomenal athletes that you know, you know, they're falling down. That poor bastard. Some of them were falling in. I think it was the Com Games and the Gold Coast. I watched a couple of. Um, marathon runners like falling into things and they'd get back up and they'd just keep going yeah the brownie brothers did it in triathlon and you know you see it all the time where the the mind the brain overpowers the body um but you know i, I don't think we've got to the bottom of you know how powerful our brains are and you can always do more than you think you can so my mindset is why would you limit what you think you can do and i don't mean a time i don't mean a position i don't mean things like that but i mean you know, if you break your race down into like 20 segments on a 50, like loads, like if you made each one of those bits better by, you know, those marginal gains, those marginal things that you could do to make yourself better, the overall picture is good. Mm. So, and an and improvement, you know what I mean? On a reaction, 7-100s I talked about, you can make that better. How many people train reaction in the world of swimming? A handful. Why? Do you know what I mean? Like we can all make ourselves better in lots of different ways. And your mind is a powerful, a, a powerful tool that is often not utilized fully. Absolutely. I think that's another podcast, mate, for us. I, I reckon we could sit and chat about the power of the mind for uh, another hour and a half. Um, I, as you know, listening to the podcast, I like to finish things with a little bit less serious, mate, just to get to know you from, you know, what you like at home, what you listen to, what you watch, all that sort of stuff. So I'll throw it out and you just straight back to me what whatever uh, first comes to your head. What sort of music do you like to listen to? With music, I love all music, and I think I've got to be in the the, the mood for the right music um, at the right time. But Kate and my wife is the one that knows every song ever in the history of it, so she's the one that creates the playlist. I'm happy to listen. So I couldn't tell you an actual genre or even a, even a an artist, but I'm I'm a big fan of music. But it's the right music at the right time. About movies, what are some of your favourite movies to watch? Well, I know you brought up a few recently, the Coach Carters, the, um, 
you know, I love all those, all those sort of movies. I think one of my favourites is a, f- a film called Fight Club. Um, mm. Good movie, just because it's, it's very different. You know, the Shawshank Redemptions, the, the classics that I absolutely love. Um, but I'm one of those people that could watch a movie and every time I see something different. I don't repeat things that often, but I'm happy to if it's a good film. I love, like, Dark Knight Rises. You know, I love... Um, those sort of films, really. Mm. About favourite meals? What do you like to get around? Oh, I'm definitely a foodie. Um, a style of food is probably a barbecue. Can't get around. Oh, I love it. Absolutely mm. love it. You know, in the summer, can't beat it. Anything. Um, what sort meat. of beverage? What sort of beverage do you have while you you have your barbecue? Oh, again, depends on the time of day. So I'm from the southwest, which is cider country. So. Um, I like a cider. I like a gin. I like a espresso martini. Um, I pretty much like everything, to be honest. I'm I'm pretty easy. Mm. About favourite countries you visited? Um, you know, you say there's a lot, and everyone says Australia is a cool place. Do you know what I mean you've got some cool, cool places around around Australia? Um, I've only done the East Coast, really. Um, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Gold Coast, um, Noosa. Love all those sort of places. Awesome. Um, I love the UK. We've got some cool places around here. And I said, I've got a camper van and we go off, you know, surfing uh, down Cornwall. I'm actually off to Edinburgh this weekend to see Caitlin's family, which would be pretty cool. Um, you know, there's lots of cool places. I actually really like parts of Bali. I know Australians like to go out there. So not really the touristy bits, but the off, off the beaten track. I love Asia. Um, 2016, we did a bit of a tour, me and Caitlin, and we went round, you know, we went throughout, you know, Hong Kong to Bali to Borneo to Thailand, um, some little remote islands off, and we absolutely loved it, and that was pretty cool. Honeymoon went to the Maldives. Um, That was the first relaxing holiday we've done pretty much in, well, ever. So um, that was quite nice after a pretty full-on year. But normally we're quite active and outdoorsy and adventury. How good's a honeymoon? I, um, our honeymoon, we went to Spain, Portugal and Italy and we drove. Like, we got a little uh, Fiat, is that what you call those little cars? And we just drove all over. We, yeah, we went from the bottom of Spain to the top of Spain to, to the, you know, all over. Where, whereabouts, the Maldives, did you go anywhere else? Uh, no, so we were going to go to a few places. We we're going to do like a twin stop in Sri Lanka. And um, I actually did a swim clinic in Sri Lanka the year before. Um, so we actually gave that a miss. But uh, on the honeymoon, it was a pure relaxing chill because it was full on. But um, yeah, and you talk about Europe and I know lots of Aussies like like Europe. Um, but we can get anywhere in Europe within an hour pretty much on yeah. a flight we're pretty spoiled. So, you know, the Greece, the, um, Italy, you know, Hungary, Spain, Portugal, France, that's, that's easy for us. Do you know what I mean? And, and we absolutely love it. So, um, it's, it's, I, I prefer going further afield just cause I've grown up around this area. You know, we, we race in the May and Ostrom series. We travel around Europe quite a bit, whether that's through work or through, you know, when I was younger with swimming. So, um, I just love traveling. You know, if you're broadening your mind about different cultures and different environments, I think that's always pretty cool too. So learning from the people around you, you know, I like America too, both East and West coast. 
Um, I could do a city break as well. You know, I'm, I'm pretty cool, pretty down for any sort of traveling. Man, I know what you're talking about in terms of being anywhere within an hour in Europe because the first time I went there, I was single, I was on my own, so I was getting around on the planes. Ryanair, why do they cheer when they land? Should it, shouldn't a plane land normally anyway? Why are we cheering for? I don't get it. I don't get it. No idea. I think it's people that don't travel and it's like we've survived. But for me, <laughs> get it. I, I shake my head. I'm like, oh, wow. But, no, yeah, interesting, interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry to the people of Ryanair if there's any avid off the blocks listeners, but I was like you, I was like, why are we clapping for this? Isn't it normal that a plane lands? Shouldn't it be landing anyway? Oh. What about uh, TV shows to binge watch, mate? What do you like to, to watch on either Netflix or TV or whatever? Um, I'm Again, I'm pretty easy. Like I, you know, I, I went through when I was an athlete, it did the full 24 designated survivor all of those sort of ones. Um, and I used to watch lots of series like that as an athlete. Um, and then I probably went a few years once I retired that I didn't watch any TV. And I probably just got back into it. So, you know, we're talking about The, the Last Dance, loved it. Loved those sort of documentaries. Mm. Um, growing up, I loved like a, a guy called David Attenborough. I don't know whether you do any of those yep. documentaries. They're all really cool. Um, some Discovery Channel TV you know, those sort of programs or, or just anything. I'm actually watching the crown at the moment on Netflix and sort of going through back sort of British Royal history. And it's, it is quite interesting. It's things that, you know, being a Brit, I didn't even know about the Royal family. And I think mm. that's been, you know, been pretty interesting. So um, I'm relatively easy watching. I can watch, you know, interesting stuff or just mundane stuff too. So how do you go with um, watching shows with the missus? I know for me, there's shows that we cross over and we will watch together. There was one Queen of the South we really enjoyed and a few others that we'd watch together. And then there's some like 13 Reasons and things like that that I hear her watching and I, w- I look over and I think, no, that's not for me and I'm not, we're not getting involved in this together at all. Well, I think we've, we've been together now for, uh, I don't know, 14 years or so. I know we've only been married a year, but it's, um, we've sort of grown up liking the same thing. So we've been quite lucky in that respect. Um, and yeah, so we, we pretty much watch, watch the, the, same, the same things, which is good, which is easy, right? Yeah, it makes life easier. Keeps you out of trouble. Unlike me, I seem to find it quite easily. Um, and I can say these sort of things because she doesn't listen to the podcast, as I've said before. And if she wants to get me in trouble, she can start listening and then she'd hear all of these things that I say. Uh, mate, favourite quotes. Have you, have you got any? Are there any that you you know you keep close to you? Not at all. No, I think I used to grow up with, with quotes. Um, but no, not really. Um don't don't get me wrong. I love them. I love mm. a good picture with a quote on it. But um, I'm one of those people. You ask me a joke, say, "I'll tell me a joke." I couldn't tell you one. It's not in my mind to remember things like that. Um, you know, I love it when people tell me a joke, and I love it when people tell me a quote. But I haven't got any off the top of my head. What about mate? If I came over to visit, we went to the pub. What would I be buying you when I went up to the bar? Um, would again, it depend on what time of the night it was? Yeah, exactly. I'll probably start off with a cider and I'll work my way up. We finished with some tequila shots. Uh, oh. If you're coming out with me, that's what we're finishing with, just so you know. Uh, finally, <laughs> Some booze 
tequila. I couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, what do you want your legacy to be in our great sport? You know, if, if I talk to people about your name, how, how do you want people to remember you as an athlete? That's a difficult one, isn't it? The, um, I think just an advocate for the sport, I think, you know, someone that was passionate about swimming and wanted to make it better. I think, you know, uh, a teammate that wanted the best for the team, you know, and the global swimming community. I think for me, that would be, you know, that would be incredible. Absolutely, mate. I uh, couldn't agree more. I want to thank you very much for coming on. I know we, uh, we took a while to get this done. My fault, not yours. So I want to thank you very, very much. I know you're busy with, with Swimsy and um, obviously, you know, everything else that's going on in your life at the moment. So thank you very much. It's been an honor to go through your career with you, mate. You're a champion in and out of the pool. I've genuinely enjoyed this chat. I've had a massive day and I actually came into this quite tired but you you just your energy and the way you spoke has really did just pepped me up and, and and got me going so mate i appreciate it thank you very much and thank you to your contribution to our sport and uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on off the block swing podcast no i really appreciate it, robbie thanks for having me and and honestly i think what you're doing for for the world of sport is is opening it you know you've had lots of my friends uh, lots of great aussie athletes on um on the podcast and I think it's been uh, sort of a different approach to seeing inside a swimmer's mind and there's lots to be learned from everyone right and I think um, in a difficult time in a tough time um, yeah you've done a cracking job so um, you'll have a good session in the morning and uh, and keep it up but yeah appreciate having me on and uh, anytime. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate it. Today's episode of Off the Block Swimming Podcast is proudly brought to you by our good friends at Pro Swim Workouts. Don't forget to head over and check out our YouTube page to catch all the fantastic interviews you may have missed from Season 3 so far. Go there, like and subscribe to stay up to date with all the latest news from the podcast. Keep your podcast fixed right here this week as we still have heaps more stars coming your way and you will not want to miss a minute of the action. Until tomorrow though, guys, have a great day. Remember to smile and laugh, please. And it's bye for now. Just a